0: Section 7 of Your Mind and How to Use It by William Walker Atkinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 The Aesthetic Emotions. By the aesthetic emotions is meant those emotional feelings which are concerned with the perception of beauty or taste, and by reason of which we like or dislike certain perceptions of sensory impressions. In order to get a better idea, let us consider what is meant by beauty and taste. Beauty is defined as that quality or assemblage of qualities in an object which gives the eye or the ear intense pleasure, or that characteristic in an object which gratifies the intellectual or moral feeling. Taste, in this sense of the term, is defined as nice perception or the power of perceiving and relishing excellence in human performances, the power of appreciating the finer qualities of art, the faculty of discerning beauty, order, congruity, proportion, symmetry, or whatever constitutes excellence, particularly in the fine arts or literature, the faculty of the mind by which we both perceive and enjoy whatever is beautiful or sublime in the works of nature and art. The possession of taste ensures grace and beauty in the works of an artist and the avoidance of all that is low or mean. It is as often the result of an innate sense of beauty or propriety as of art education, and no genius can compensate for the want of it. Tastes differ so much among individuals, nations, or in different ages and conditions of civilization that it is utterly impossible to set up a standard of taste applicable to all men and to all stages in the evolution of society. The aesthetic sense, feeling, and emotion are products of the later stages of the evolution of the mind of man. Their roots, however, may be seen in the crude attempts at decoration and adornment in the savage, and still further back in the tendency of certain birds to adorn their nests or bowers. Moreover, Some sense of beauty must exist in the lower animals, which are influenced thereby in the selection of their mates, the bright plumage of the birds, and the colouring of the insects and higher animals, evidencing the existence of at least a primitive aesthetic sense. Herbert Spencer says that one characteristic of the aesthetic feelings is that they are separated from the functions vitally requisite and necessary to sustain life and it is not until the latter are reasonably well satisfied that the former begin to manifest in force. The authorities hold that the basic element concerned in the manifestation of the aesthetic emotional feeling is the sensory element, which consists of the pleasure arising from the perception of objects of vision, or hearing, which are deemed beautiful. There is a certain nervous satisfaction which arises from the perception of the sensation of the sight of a beautiful thing, or the hearing of beautiful sound. Just why certain sights prove agreeable and others disagreeable, or certain sounds pleasant and others unpleasant, is very difficult to determine. Association and habit may have something to do with the beauty of sight object, and there may be natural harmony of vibration in colors as there is in sound. In the case of sounds, there is undoubtedly a natural harmony between the vibrations of certain notes of the scale, and in harmony between others. Some have held that the secret of the enjoyment of music is found in the natural appreciation of rhythm, as rhythm is a cosmic manifestation evident in everything from great to small. But these theories do not account for the differences existing in the tastes regarding colour and music manifested by different individuals, races, and classes of people. Grant Allen says, The vulgar are pleased with great masses of colour, especially red, orange, and purple, which give their coarse, nervous organisation the requisite stimulus. The refined, with nerves of less calibre but greater discriminativeness, require delicate combinations of complementaries and prefer neutral tints to the glare of the primary hues. Children and savages love to dress in all the colours of the rainbow. In the same way, persons of certain types of taste are pleased with ragtime and cheap rollicking songs or dances, while others shudder at these and find delight in the classic productions of the great composers. There is also the intellectual element to be reckoned with in the aesthetic emotions. The intellect must discover the beauty in certain objects, before the emotion is aroused by the perception. Halleck says, every time the mind discerns unity amid variety, order, rhythm, proportion or symmetry, an aesthetic emotion arises. The traveller with a trained intellect will see far more beauty than an ignorant one. In looking at a cathedral, a large part of the aesthetic enjoyment comes from tracing out the symmetry from comparing part with part. Not until this process is complete will the full beauty of the structure as a whole be perceived. If the traveller knows something of the medieval architecture before starting on his European trip, he will see far more beauty. The opposite of the aesthetic, which we call the ugly, is the unsymmetrical, the disorderly, that in which we can discover no rhythm, plan or beauty. The element of associative suggestion also enters into the manifestation of aesthetic emotional feeling. The mind accepts the suggestion of the beauty of certain styles of art, or the excellence of certain classes of music. There are fashions in art and music, as in clothes, and what is thought beautiful today may be deemed hideous tomorrow. This is not entirely due to the evolution of taste, for, in many cases, The old fashions are revived and again deemed beautiful. There is, moreover, the effect of the association of the object of emotion with certain events or persons. This association renders the thing popular, and therefore agreeable and beautiful for the time being. The suggestion in a story will often cause the beauty of a certain scene or the harmony of a certain piece of music to dawn upon thousands of persons. Some noted person sets the seal of approval upon a certain picture or musical composition, and lo, the multitude calls it beautiful. It must not be supposed, however, that the crowd always counterfeits this sense of beauty and excellence which has been suggested to it. On the contrary, genuine aesthetic feeling often results from the discovery so made. There is style and fashion in the use of words, resulting from fashion which gives rise to aesthetic feelings regarding them. These feelings do not arise from the consideration of the nature of the object expressed by the word. Of two words designating the same thing, one causes disgust, and the other at least passive tolerance. For instance, in speaking of the sensible moisture which is emitted from the pores of the skin, we may use either of the respective terms sweat or perspiration. Both mean the same thing and have an equally respectable origin, but to many persons the word sweat causes an unpleasant aesthetic emotion, while the word perspiration is accepted without remonstrance. Some persons abhor the term victuals, while viands or food are accepted without protest. There is often an unpleasant low, vulgar association connected with some words which accounts for the disfavour with which they are received, and which association is absent. the more polite terms employed to indicate the same thing, but in other cases there is nothing but the simple suggestion of fashion and style to account for the aesthetic acceptance or rejection. It is possible that some psychologist of the future will establish the truth of the theory now tentatively advanced by a few investigators, namely, that taste and the sense of beauty depend almost entirely upon the element of suggestion manifested as association, influence of authority, habit, fashion, imitation, etc. It is known that the emotional nature is peculiarly liable to suggestion, and that taste may be created or destroyed by repeated suggestion under the most favorable circumstances. It is thought likely that if we could trace back to its roots every emotion of taste, we would find it arising from some associative, suggestive influence, connected with another and more elemental class of emotions. Regarding the fact that there is no universal standard of taste or beauty, Halleck says, It has been said that aesthetics cannot be created in a scientific way, because there is no standard of taste. De gustibus non est disputandum, there is no disputing about tastes, is an old proverb. Of two equally intelligent persons, one may like a certain book, The other dislike it. While it is true that the standard of taste is a varying one within certain limits, it is no more so than that of morals. As men's nervous systems, education and associations differ, we may scientifically conclude that their tastes must differ. The greater the uniformity in the factors, the less does the product vary. On the other hand, within certain limits, the standard of aesthetics is relatively uniform. It is fixed by the majority of intelligent people of any age and country. To estimate the standard by which to judge of the correctness of a language, or of the literary taste of any era, we examine the conversations of the best speakers, the works of the standard writers. The aesthetic emotions may be developed and cultivated by exercise and practice, and particularly by association and familiarity with beautiful things, and with those who have taste. Appreciation of beauty is more or less contagious, up to a certain point of development at least, and if one wishes to recognize, understand, and appreciate beauty, he should go where beauty is, and where its votaries are gathered. The study of standard works of art, or objects of nature, or the best productions of the composers of music, will do much to develop and unfold one's higher aesthetic feelings and understanding. It is claimed by some of the best authorities that to develop the finer and higher aesthetic feelings and understanding, we must learn to find beauty and excellence in things removed from ourselves or our selfish interests. The narrow selfish emotions kill the aesthetic feelings. The two cannot exist together. The person whose thoughts are centred on himself or herself very rarely finds beauty or excellence in works of art or music. Grant Allen well sums up the subject in the following words. Good taste is a progressive product of progressing fineness and discrimination in the nerves, educated attention, high and noble emotional constitution, and increasing intellectual faculties. End of chapter 16 Chapter 17 The Intellectual Emotions By the intellectual emotions is meant that class of emotional feeling resulting from the presence of objects of intellectual interest this class of emotions depends for its satisfaction upon the exercise of the intellectual faculties from the most simple to the most complex and including perception memory imagination reason judgment and all the logical faculties those who are accustomed to employing the mind through voluntary attention particularly in the direction of creative ideation or constructive imagination, experience these emotions to a greater or less degree. The exercise of perception, if we are skilled therein, gives us a pleasurable feeling, and if we succeed in making an interesting or important discovery by reason thereof, we experience a strong degree of emotional satisfaction. Likewise, We experience agreeable feelings when we are able to remember distinctly something which might well have been forgotten, or when we succeed in recalling something which had escaped our memory for the moment. In the same way, the exercise of the imagination is a source of great pleasure in many cases in the direction of writing, planning, inventing, or other creative processes, or even in the building of air-castles. The exercise of the logical faculties gives great pleasure to those in whom these faculties are well developed. Halleck well says, there is probably not a happier moment in Newton's life than when he had succeeded in demonstrating that the same power which caused the apple to fall held the moon and the planets in their orbits. When Watt discovered that steam might be harnessed, like the horse, when an inventor succeeds in perfecting a labor-lightening device, Whenever an obscurity is cleared away, the reason for a thing understood and a baffling instance brought under a general law, intellectual emotion results. The pleasurable feelings we experience upon the reading of a good book, or the discovery of real poetry, are forms of intellectual emotion. The same class of emotional feeling is aroused when we witness a good play. Among other instances of this class we mention the perception of clever work of any kind, intricate machinery, ingenious devices, helpful improvements, or other works of man which indicate the existence of thought and inventive ability in the designer or builder. To appreciate mental work of this kind, we must bring a mind developed along the same or similar lines. It has well been said that before one can take away anything from a book, he must bring something to it, It takes mentality to recognize and appreciate mentality, or the work of mentality. The study of scientific subjects is a source of great pleasure to those who are inclined to such pursuits. To the scientific mind, the study of the latest work, on the favorite branch, gives a joy which nothing else is capable of arousing. To the philosopher, the works of other philosophers of the same school give intense satisfaction. It is claimed that the sense of humor and wit is an intellectual emotion, for it depends upon the detection of the ludicrous features of a happening. Certain psychologists have held that the distinctive element of humor is a feeling attendant upon the perception of incongruity, while that of wit is the feeling of superiority on the part of the witty person and a corresponding chagrin of the object of his wit. It would seem, however, that the appreciation of wit must depend upon the intellectual perception of cleverness of expression, and the pleasure resulting from the discovery thereof, and that the feeling of humour is aroused principally by reason of the incongruous element. The feeling of self-satisfaction, as contrasted with the discomfiture of the other person, belongs to the more selfish emotions. An authority says, Humor is the mental faculty which tends to discover incongruous resemblances between things which essentially differ, or essential differences between things put forth as the same, the result being internal mirth or an outburst of laughter. Wit does so likewise, but the two are different. Humor has deep human sympathy and loves men while raising a laugh against their weaknesses. Wit is deficient in sympathy and there is often a sting in its ridicule somewhat contemptuous of mankind it has not the patience to study them thoroughly but must content itself with noting superficial resemblances or differences humour is patient and keenly observant and penetrates beneath the surface while therefore the sallies of wit are often one-sided and unfair those of humour are as a rule just and wise The development and cultivation of the intellectual emotions depend, of course, upon education, training, exercise, and practice. The cultivation of the intellect, which has been referred to, in part, in the previous parts of this book, and which will again be considered in the chapters devoted to the intellect, results in the development and cultivation of the emotions accompanying intellectual effort. In a general way, however, It may be said that the reading of the best works of fiction, science and philosophy will bring out in time the best form of intellectual enjoyment and feeling. The highest gives the best. That is the rule. The present chapter should be read and studied in connection with those devoted to the intellect. BLENDED EMOTIONS As we have said at the beginning of our consideration of the subject of the emotions, The majority of emotions are composed of several feelings, and tend to blend and combine emotional elements. For instance, the emotion of sexual love certainly has its origin in the instinctive feelings of the race, and its motive element is that of passion. But passion is far from being all there is in human sexual love. Above the plane of passion is found the social emotion of companionship, protection and care, the desire for the welfare of the loved one the mingling of the love of the parent with that of the mate. Human love manifests many of the altruistic emotions during its course. The welfare of the loved one becomes the chief concern of life, often stronger even than self-preservation. The joy of the loved one becomes the greatest joy, far surpassing the more selfish forms of happiness. Then come the aesthetic feelings, which find satisfaction in the two liking the same things, sympathy and community of feeling being the connecting link the several ideals of the two combining there is produced an idealistic union which is often called spiritual harmony finally there is found the blending of the intellectual emotions in which harmony there exists one of the highest forms of pleasure satisfaction between two persons of opposite sexes it is said that the more things that a man and woman like in common the closer will be their liking for each other. I love you because you love the things I love is no rare thought and expression. So it is seen that though born in elemental instinct and passion, human sexual love is something far different in its flowering, and yet without its root it would not be and cannot be. This is an excellent example of the complex nature of the most common emotions. It may be used as a typical illustration what is true of it is also true in a way and in a degree of every other form of emotion therefore in studying a particular emotion be not too quick to cry it is this it is that but rather seek to say it is composed of this and that few if any emotions are simple the majority are very complex Hence, the difficulty of satisfactory classification and the danger of dogmatic definition. End of Chapter Seventeen. end of Section Seven.